Hi there and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. Each time this podcast brings together two leaders from the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond to discuss how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. We're supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. This episode goes from fashion to freeholds. Amanda Wakeley is the famous designer who has clothed the late Princess of Wales, Beyonce and Michelle Obama. She's joined by Dame Alison Nimmo, who has for the last eight years run the Crown Estate. The company has a diverse £14 billion portfolio and is landlord to retailers all along London's Regent Street, as well as many offshore wind farms along the UK coastline. Please enjoy this recording and rate and review us. I began by asking Alison what first attracted her to this leadership role. Yeah, the Crown Estate's a very special organisation and with roots right back to 1066, but obviously a, a sort of modern real estate business these days. Well, I'd come out of eight years on the Olympics, first on the bid and then um, being a director delivering London 2012. And, you know, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride, but in the end it was a, an extraordinary success story and it was, what am I going to do next? And... As you know, my passion is about property and regeneration in cities. And at heart, I'm a West End girl. I started my career working for Westminster City Council. And, um, you know, the West End was my patch and saw a job advert in the Sunday Times for the Chief Executive of the Crown Estate. And I just sort of thought that's got my name all over it, really. I mean, they'd never hired anyone quite as young or quite as female before. And I just thought... (laughs) Well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, really. And people know us very well for the West End, but we've also got a fantastic retail portfolio Mm. across the UK. And the really exciting thing we've done in the last 10 years is, with our management of the seabed, grown a world-class offshore wind uh, business. But so much more than than a property company, as you say, and I guess, and also, you know, because of the governance and the ownership and so on, very unique. The legal owner is the sovereign. And... uh, I love to say to everyone, we pay 100% tax, so all our revenues go back into the Treasury. So Mm -hmm. that was £343 million last Mm -hmm. year. So Mm -hmm. that whole running a very successful business, but doing it with a real purpose and and contributing back into the nation's finances is something that really motivates my team. Mm. Amanda, I would love to ask you what attracted you to the role. But I guess, you know, you are, are, the, the role is you, if you like. It absolutely is. And I came back from living and working in America in the late 80s. And I couldn't find the clothes that I loved over in America. It was sort of before the time that the big American designers had made their way over here. And I just thought in a very simplistic, youthful way, well, if I want it, other people will want it. So I started in a tiny, tiny design studio in the back end of Chelsea and created a very small collection of pieces that I really loved and wanted to share with other people. And how does it feel to have, you know, you're a leader of an organisation, but you also have your name over the door. So it's always, always going to be very personal. Very personal, and if ever I, or whenever I correct people or pull them up for being sloppy or not working to to my standards, I, I always remind them that it's my name above the door and my reputation. And so, yes, the devil's in the detail, and um, that that they have to be my ambassadors too. So there's no comeback from that, is there? It's my name above the door. So that's, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm interested in how you 
balance up? I mean, at the moment, you are, well, you are always founder of Amanda Wakely, but you're also creative director. And I guess at the time, times over the years, you've had, um, you know, other titles associated. How do you divide a lot up in your mind? How do you get your priorities right? Constantly juggling. You know, it's what women do well, isn't it? <laughs> Multitasking. <laughs> Multitasking. Yes, you're constantly multitasking. For me, and I'm interested to know you, Alison, because I know you're a a keen triathlete, aren't you? (laughs) And for me, actually, that standing back and making time for fitness and or climbing a mountain to get that fresh air and to get some perspective is fundamental. I also really believe fit bodies, fit mind. Well, Alison, how, how, you've always you've always done sport. I think I remember when I first interviewed you, you combined a site visit with a, with a triathlon because you'd just been around Great Windsor Park. But <laughs> that was bad diary planning. <laughs> <laughs> but you fit it. You fitted I think both that sides in. Really, very, very good diary planning, <laughs> multitasking to the extreme. I agree with what Amanda said that because during the Olympics, I got very, very busy and worked ridiculous hours to the point where I I was about to fall over really, and I just thought this is complete madness and I need to get a balance back into my life. I used to love sport and I used to do running and swimming and cycling and all of that stuff and I just thought this is crazy especially the irony of working on the Olympics and not having any time to do any sport and I just started doing it again and I've I've just made it a promise to myself now as part of what as Amanda said just getting a balance in your life and you know I will say to people you can't you can't run a marathon in the red zone you know Mm. you've got to pace yourself and perspective and having the right people around you and friends and investing time in that is is you know is just as important and making you a good leader actually mm. i mean because happy leaders are good leaders mm. and alison what is the uh, you, you know coming towards the end of your time now at crown estate what's been the challenge over the last couple of years because this organization has had great momentum yeah it, it's changed beyond all recognition in the eight years it, it's been fascinating to be part of leading that i mean we have the most amazing collection of assets but we've built a really talented team and and actually really challenged ourselves not just thinking about uh, investing in real estate and building buildings but really thinking about how do we create brilliant places places that people want to be in taking central london for example you know the whole renovation and repositioning of Regent Street as one of the best shopping streets in the world, but then also where people can work, they can play, making it one of the most sustainable streets in the world Mm. as well. Um, Because you have this term in the annual report, conscious commercialism, which I guess is a new way of saying the balance between profit with purpose and so on. It's that kind of area, is it? Yeah, we you know we have a commercial mandate, but not just a commercial mandate. So thinking much more broadly about how we do business, how we think about it in the round, how we build to last, and we we have you know some amazing customers and thinking about their challenges, and increasingly in this new, fast-moving, complex world, you know the real estate industry needs to move and think much less about the buildings and much more about how we create experiences and you know places that people really want to be and and we do that over the long term and that makes it a lot more fun and a lot more interesting and that's you know we're pulling in some fantastic talent and non-real estate people that are really passionate about customer Mm. and uh, and that sort of broader uh, broader agenda. Amanda with seven boutiques around largely around London and into Bristol and you know Leeds and so on you must be pleased to hear anyone who's investing in in high quality retail space. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think it's an incredibly challenging time in the retail world, the bricks and mortar retail world, because so much is going online and going away from the city centres and and all of that. So um, it's music to my ears because retail now has to be about so much more than just beautiful product and good service. It's it's about you know what more are you giving to your customer? Open up, make make your theatre, whatever that theatre is. For me, it's very much a sense of home and sharing. Yeah. is really fundamental to retail now. And tell me about the... T- I'm interested in the time horizons you work to and the planning. People say in, in luxury you only you can only be as good as your last collection, perhaps, but you also have to have, I guess, that long-term relationship with people. Yes, absolutely. And so we work on really extended timelines. For example, we're just finishing up the design of Winter 20. 2020, which is just crazy. And then we have to go straight into spring 21 and have that all Mm. sketched before Christmas, which is, you know, but by the same token, over the last few years, we've divided the collection into being the the fashion collection and then also offering your real key signature wardrobe staples. So your perfect pant, whether you're a flare girl or a wide leg girl or a peg pant girl great white shirts beautiful cashmere staples that you can always get they never go on sale you're you're saying i'm really proud of these pieces they're perfect wardrobe staples or perfect in my mind and that i'm respecting my customer by saying i don't put these on sale these these are beautiful pieces that form the foundation of your wardrobe so where do you get all that creativity and inspiration from Oh, actually, life. And I am a woman designing for women. And what do I need? What makes me feel good? Because I always think of clothes as a very soft armour. And, (laughs) you know, they they actually talk about who we are. Mm -hmm. And they might talk about who we are on that day or for that event. And that might be a a different person. I'm, I'm a huge believer in dressing for your mood. What do you... How do you need to feel today? Do I need to feel a little bit more empowered at the school gates? Yes, actually, a four-ply cashmere sweater will make me feel (laughs) quite special. Or that perfectly cut dress will give me, just put my shoulders back, make me feel stronger in the boardroom or in that interview or that important meeting. And you're still very hands-on in that creative process. I am, yes. I think, I do always think that you have to have, I'm sure you agree, a complete passion for what you do. Otherwise, we've got better things to do with life. And so that's my, if you want to call it my indulgence. But actually, I think it's essential because I'm A, living the lifestyle, being that it's so I know what I need and how I want to feel and that informs a lot of my design decisions. Alison to turn to your passion which I think has been placemaking and I'll come back to some of the earlier things uh, later on the interested in how you treat the the portfolio at, at Crown Estate because there are many things you can do but I guess you can't necessarily go in and sell off this and sell off that you have to you're almost a custodian of assets which have been around since the Norman Conquest so you have to work with what you've got to some extent, do you? Well, some things are what we would call ancient assets, like the seabed. And obviously, you know, Regent Street, we're just having its 200th birthday uh, mm-hmm. this year. So it's it's been in the portfolio for a while, but it's not a static portfolio. Things do come in and out. And we're, you know, we if you look at buying things, selling things, and the investment we put into development, that's probably about a billion pounds a year. So we're, you know, we're a very active developer and we're always looking for 
new opportunities, but we very fo- very much focus on where we've got scale and expertise. Mm. And you know, central London is is obviously something that you know we've invested in for the long term. And that this idea of adaptability and long term stewardship, and mm. you know, it's a very rare thing to have such a contiguous uh, ownership mm. right in the middle of this fantastic capital city. Yeah. But, and metrics <laughs> of success. I mean, the surplus I think has gone up. Something like £100 million on, on your watch, which must be very pleasing. But that can't be the only, as you said, there's the, there's the broader things that you see as success of leadership. Yeah, we've doubled, pretty much doubled the capital value of the uh, the estate as well. So, but um, more broadly, you know, we've, we've got eight gigawatts of uh, offshore wind um, uh, generating with our partners in the seabed. And we're looking to um, quadruple that to... 2030. So we could have a third of the UK's electricity uh, coming from renewable, which is a very important part of our energy mix. Which is amazing uh, because really that was, that was nowhere really. I think it was 2% of when you It was you, a you glimmer came. in people's eye really actually and it's now, it, it now is literally a world-class industry and we you know, we, 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 we manage that very, very carefully for the long term. Amanda, I'll, I'll come back to you. How would you describe your management style, your leadership style? It's evolved over the years. <laughs> I, I suppose when you're a founder and you, you start with a tiny little business where you're doing effectively everything and then you start bringing on members of the team and you can't just be totally autocratic any longer. You have to evolve. And I didn't go to design school or business school and I didn't spend huge amounts of time working for other people. So I've sort of learnt on the job. I think for me... What I've really, really embraced over the last few years is that you have to have a phenomenal team, but it's not just about having great people. It's about having people that you like and respect because you spend an extraordinary amount of time with these people. And likewise, they need to like and respect you. Because being creative, you know, as you've dis- described with the collections as you look you know, more than a year forward, it, it can, I suppose it began as a very solo pursuit. And then suddenly there are people around you, people beneath you looking for direction. And then there's things like the accounts to sort out and, and so on. So it's, it's uh, develop a lot of these things as you go along or you find people you can trust, I guess, so you can continue with the leadership part. Yes, absolutely. And then working out what you're good at. And as important as that is working out what you're not good at. And you can't, you're not an island. We we have to have people around us that are better than us mm. at at those different bits of, of the job. What's your approach, Alison? Well, I got a lot of exposure and responsibility when I was quite young. So I helped rebuild uh, Manchester after the bomb back in 96. And so I found myself at the tender age of 30, you know, helping rebuild a city. And, you know, nobody had really taught you how to be a leader. So I was a bit of an accidental leader, really. Um, what was the team you were looking after? Because it was very, I think you were working close by in Liverpool and you were seconded in and never went back. But what was the team you looked after there? The direct team was quite small. Been, mm. And so we were working very closely with my very inspirational boss, Sir Howard Bernstein. He went back to run be chief executive with the city council in Manchester and mm. sort of left me in charge but said don't worry I'll be on the end of a phone and so it was a small <laughs> team small team and a small budget you know 83 million pounds and there was only about 13 of us but the trick was 
we were the glue that basically pulled the, the whole of the, the master plan together and worked with some phenomenal partners to, you know, deliver a rebuilt city in four years. So to take the yeah. adversity of something like the bomb and turn it into a, a real opportunity. And I think back then I was very sort of command and control and I thought a leader needed all the answers and sort of led from the front and I was trying to be something that wasn't really me really. And I think working on the Olympics and the, just the huge scale that had to be delivered, I I realised and I, I had to let go and, as Amanda said, you know, bring some really talented people in mm. around you and empower them and let go. And I suppose now I would, at the Crown Estate, I would sort of probably say I'm more like team coach, really. You mm. know, you set a direction and then it's all about empowering people and working with them, you know, I think leadership is very much something you do with people, not to them. Yeah. Does that make you easier to work for now? Oh, you have to ask my team that, really. But <laughs> I find that people's motivation really fascinating. And, you know, if you can you can set out something like a mission and a sort of purpose and really get people invested in that, it's amazing when you see people find their wings and really passionate about uh, delivering it and that's that's probably some of the most pleasure I've had doing my job as a leader is mm. seeing people really find what they're capable of. I, I completely agree. Seeing people spread their wings yeah. and evolve is the most rewarding part of what I do outside of making women feel the best version of themselves. I love seeing and, and being part of that journey with mm -hmm. my team. My first chairman who hired me into the Crown Estate, he was ex-John Lewis, um, uh, Sir Stuart um, Hampson, and he, he talked about it as missionaries and mercenaries. And he said, what you want in your team is missionaries. So they believe, they really believe and they're really passionate about what you're doing. And they're the people that will stick with you through mm. thick and thin uh, whereas the the you know the mercenaries will just hop from job to job to job. Yeah. So yeah, Amanda, if I can talk about those people that stick with you thick and thin. I mean, there was a time, there was many years when y you weren't in control of your company, which had your name over the door. Um, that wasn't long, actually. It wasn't long. That was okay. a very, very brief period. Yeah. But yes, I've had backers who yeah. have effectively run the business and perhaps not mm. how I would necessarily aspire to run it. But sorry, what I meant was I stepped aside from the business for just about four months. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think around that time, there was a, it felt like from the cuttings, and please correct me, mm. the people were behind you. There was a number of people who, you know, stood with you rather than the company that had your name, if you like. They were the thick and thin people. Absolutely. And, you know, buying the business back and working out whether to keep the mercenaries or <laughs> the, the people that hadn't stuck with me had gone with the alternative temporary venture was an interesting moment. That must be tough, though, because it's really personal because it's your business it's really tough I mean the sort of business head and the, the head and heart must be really difficult to yes, separate really really hard and and I think company culture as I've never felt more strongly about it than I do, do now that you you really have to like the people you work with life's too short Alison tell me about the workforce and you, whether they're missionaries or mercenaries I mean you, within Crown Estate so diverse West End property types 
I guess, tree surgeons in Great Windsor Park. And then there's there's the people handling boat moorings and stuff really out on the shoreline or something. So a huge, diverse workforce. How do you bring those all, them all together and, and make them feel like they're part of a cohesive whole? Well, we're a £14 billion company these mm-hmm. days, but actually we're only a team of 450 people on about you know, 50-50 down in Windsor and HQ here in, in central London. Some people think the Crown Estate is tens of thousands of people and it's not. Do so you just, can still have a Christmas party then? Yeah, we have one in Windsor and, and one up in town, okay. but we sort of, it's a very, we're a very sort of close-knit team and our HQ here in London, we, we moved a couple of years ago and we moved everyone onto a single floor, open plan, nobody has an office, to try and really get the team to work in a really, really sort of collaborative way because there's lots of synergies between different parts of the business. But we're largely an outsourced model, so a lot of our supply chain are really, really important in terms of how we partner and getting them to buy into the mission and the quality and the creating brilliant places is all part of our success. So the partners are almost part of the family as well, even though they're not on the payroll, so to speak. Yeah, you have to get everyone to buy into, you know, that real, as Amanda said, that real fixation about your customer and understanding what's going to make them successful. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to make us successful. And are you out in the the business sort of mystery shopper, if you like? How do you keep connected with the grassroots? Well, with a relatively small team, I mean, I love getting out and about. Um, I, I still love getting my hard hat on like I used to on the Olympics and going out on site. So I love being down in the engine room and I do sometimes have to remind myself that I need to be back on the bridge of the ship sort of steering and strategy and working with the board and looking out for icebergs but you know it's an open door policy and um I spend a lot of time, whether it's in the cafe at lunchtime, just talking to people mm. and listening to what's going on in the business. That's really, really important. Mm. And and making sure that people understand what we're trying to do and they've really bought into that mission. Mm. So we, we have a, an annual staff survey and it's extraordinary. Last year, 97% of my team said they were proud to work for the Crown Estate and That's... that 88% of people said it was a great place to work. And those statistics weren't like that seven years ago. That's amazing. Um, and, uh, it is amazing. You can, and, and you can do extraordinary things when you've got a team that's that motivated. Yeah. yeah. Amanda, tell me how you split your time. We've alluded to this. So there's the design and the creative time, and then there's the strategy and uh, and leadership. So how, how do you work that through? It's really juggling, <laughs> and no two days are alike, in fact. And, you know, one day I might be in the design studio all day. The next day I might be hosting an event, well-being event at our flagship Next day, I might be doing an hour presenting my monogram handbags on QVC mm-hmm. out in Chiswick, which is a you know, completely different set of skills. And next day, we might be doing a street-style shoot for social media. But it all works somehow. Somehow, yes. Mm. Actually, I think for me, we're, my partner and I are very keen skiers and we have a home in Switzerland. And so in the winter, we tend to leave London on a Thursday evening and spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Switzerland. And for me, that actual break of the week, you can work on the journey. And by the time you've finished a really good bit of exercise on Friday, you can be back at your desk you know, in in the chalet at sort of 2 p.m. London time and do six hours of 
really, really good work because you've got a clear head and you've thought about things as you've been climbing a mountain. And that, for me, part of that juggling process has been, that's been a real sanity saver, actually. Mm. You're um, interested in how the luxury market's changed over the time you've been involved since starting to design in, in 1990. It feels like the market's bigger. Has it become more competitive? It's become more competitive. It's very noisy. Uh, you've got, um, you know, um, you've got all the mega brands. You've got all of these niche brands that have come up and just market solely on social media and have done it very cleverly. So it's it's become a much more complex market. You've got celebrities and social media stars creating their own ranges or pop stars creating multi-million pound businesses overnight. LVMH just invested in Rihanna, for example. Mm. And that would never have happened, I don't believe, 10 years ago. Uh, so that just is a mark of how much the market has changed. So how do you remain a leader then, remain pushing yourself ahead in that uh, area? I think you have to retain integrity. I think and unless you do what you do with integrity, the, the market's not stupid. Our customers are not stupid. And it's just remembering that fundamentally... I am a woman designing for women. What do they need? What do they aspire to look like? How do they aspire to feel? And never losing sight of that. And also understanding that we have a really loyal customer evolving the messaging to her and making sure she feels really part of the family, really valued. Other than that, it's just about being nimble. And as the market evolves, trying to retain uh, a relevance and 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 staying very true to the brand to myself and without without staying true to myself and the brand then I think you get a bit lost mm. Alison to talk a little bit more on the the placemaking that's you know, characterized your um, career I suppose there's some there's about a balance here about profit versus the public role and we see that in whether you've been regenerating St. James's down the road or some of these pretty ambitious stadia you signed off on for the Olympics. Talk a little about that, please. I think it's about building to last and, and building quality, really. I mean, uh, on the Olympics, there was a, a huge amount of focus, as you remember, we were going through a financial crisis at the time on uh, time. You know, we had a very fixed deadline. We had 25 years of regeneration to do in uh, five years and a, and a very clear focus on budgets, mm. as there always are on big public uh, projects. And I I felt my very specific role as a director of uh, regeneration and, and design was was holding on to the long-term legacy mm. because the, the money we were investing in the East End of London was about shifting the whole perception and growing London eastwards. And, you know, once once all the Olympics had left town and the, the medals were all put away in boxes, you know, we were, we were going to be tested with what was left behind and had we my test for myself was had we created a really high quality new piece of city mm. and you know the fantastic uh, Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park at the centre of it I think steals the show and we, you know we created a lot of new infrastructure and venues which are well I swim in the aquatic centre I've been right to the top of the velodrome and if you're a speed fiend on a bike it's a really scary thing but it's a piece of the city now it's sort of living and breathing and it, it lasts and it grows and it evolves and it's and still been regenerated with new arts organisations that are going in there the College of Fashion 
competition and, and so on. Yeah, and an incredible sort of mix of uh, uses, so not just sport and new housing, you know, the Olympic Village being turned into, um, you know, a whole new neighbourhood with a school and the polyclinic becoming a health centre. And do you see yourself as more of a public servant than a commercially driven CEO? I don't see it as an either or, really. I mean, I, what we try to do in the Olympics, what we try and do in the Crown Estate is I'm, I've worked in the private sector, I've worked in the public sector. And I think if you can pick the best qualities of both, so thinking about being a public servant or a, a public body, thinking long term, thinking beyond just uh, the pound signs, thinking about, you know, the, the impact you have on a broader society and really thinking at the end of the day, you're your customers are the taxpayers, um, but at the same time being on, taking the best from the private sector, which is quite entrepreneurial and taking risk and delivering commercial, long-term commercial success. I'd put sustainability and things into that as well. You know, I didn't want to, we learned a lot on sustainability on the Olympics. Sebco promised the greenest games ever. And I really, when when I came and started the uh, leading the, the Crown Estate, I didn't want to choose from a commercially successful company and a company that does business in the right way. Mm. And, you know, that whole value set of thinking quite carefully about impact on the planet and people. Mm. Uh, and so running a business that really thinks quite hard about how it does business and how it does business in the right way. And I don't, I think if you do, if you can do that in the right way, and I'm sure Amanda would thinks that with her business, if you can get that right, then I think it makes you stronger and more successful in the long term. And it goes straight to brand and reputation and all the things you were talking about, trust. And so many of these sites that you have developed in the eight years it transformed from there are disproportionately a lot fewer tatty souvenir shops around the centre of London now, which is probably much of that is down to how you've lifted the portfolio. Well, we put a huge investment into uh, Regent Street and I take every opportunity to walk down it. It's an extraordinary street. But we put a lot of investment into Windsor. I mean, mm. Windsor is one of the most stunningly beautiful historic places and it's now just reached all of natural England's sort of top marks on all the biodiversity mm. and you know there's ancient woodlands and I mean it's just the most extraordinary place and it actually you know Windsor now makes money it has an operating surplus the team have never worked so hard and been so motivated and you know people that go and visit Great Park Great Windsor Great Park it looks even more beautiful today so that stewardship, running a tight business and delivering quality, you know, all mutually reinforce each other. We have this constant debate about rebalancing the UK economy and doing more in the regions and so on. I know your portfolio is skewed to the property, is skewed to the southeast. Do you think it's a shame that there hasn't been, not Crown Estate money, but just more investment per se gone into those some of those northern cities that you know well from your past? Yeah, we've, we've just published a book, actually, Regenerating Cities, and I was on a platform uh, last night with uh, uh, my nine co-authors of people that have been regenerating cities right across the UK. And we were talking about the need for ongoing long-term investment in the sort of fabric of places, the social fabric as well as the physical fabric, whether that's coastal communities or great cities like Birmingham and Manchester and mm. very strong advocate for that. And I think if we're ever going to get proper balanced growth in the UK, then mm. we, we need to do that. But mm. with places like Grimsby are becoming a great success story with things like offshore energy having their the sort of operations and construction and things, mm. you know, the Humber uh, energy estuary. So it's about these particularly seaside places and, and sort of um, 
giants of the industrial revolution, if you like, mm. refinding their purpose in life and constantly adapting to this new mm. world. It's changes everywhere these days. Yep. And the trick is finding something that you really can be successful at. Mm. Amanda, tell me about mentorship. Who's helped you along the way? God, the word mentor didn't really even exist in 30 years ago when I started the business. I've probably made far fewer mistakes if I'd had a mentor. I really see the value and power of it, though. And uh, my partner, Hugh Morrison, has been a phenomenal sounding board. I, I would hate to call him a mentor because I think that would really belittle how incredibly important he has been in my working life because he is just so inspiring. He's got this ability to laser cut through any issues to get to absolutely the core of it so quickly. So that's been fundamental to me. And uh, likewise, to see stars rising within the business is, is very, very rewarding to take someone. For example, we take on about 15 interns during the course of a year and to see them evolve and really understand the industry uh, because we only take on interns who have a year in industry as part of their course. And to see them come out of their six months with us or nine months or even a year with us and, and sort of say, this has been 10 times more important and useful to me than my education. I, I understand that my education is, is part of the process, but to really understand that I actually want to get into the technical side of fashion or the buying side of fashion or the e-commerce side of fashion and to really understand how a fashion business works has been invaluable. And that's, that's great for them, but are they also bringing ideas to you, if you like, from the bottom up? Absolutely. And as you get older, <laughs> we need all sorts of different ages around us to stay relevant and stay exciting. I just want to touch on marketing because you say there were mistakes you made early on, but actually Actually, marketing this brand and getting great people to wear your great clothes was something, well, certainly looking back from now, it looks like you did it effortlessly. I guess you didn't, but I'd love to hear. Yes, thank you. That's <laughs> that's kind. I was very lucky early days, you know, you talk about was it sort of luck or hard work? And I, I have a saying that hard work breeds luck. But I was lucky in the sense that I was introduced to the late Princess of Wales very early in my career by the now late deputy editor of Vogue. Anna Harvey, who said, you should meet, I think your style is very good for Diana, and I think you'd get on well. And so that was an incredibly important early relationship for me. But I, I do actually believe, unless your product is good enough, and it, it hits the mood of the moment, and it has appeal, there's no amount of money and pushing and connections that's going to get your clothes onto people unless they actually like them and feel good in them. And so, yes, those relationships are really important or those endorsements are sure. really, really important. But for me, it's about making sure that the product is really as beautiful as it can be to appeal to those people. And in that kind of situation, you've set your stall out, you're an entrepreneur, you are making the clothes that you want to wear yourself. If there's that opportunity with Princess Diana or others, Queen Rainier, there's many others, is there an element of compromise then? Or are you partnering with them, no, if you like? Uh, not at all, because um, my business is fundamentally a ready-to-wear business. Mm -hmm. So we can and do do bespoke for a client who specifically wants it. But what I pride myself on, actually, is creating a beautiful wardrobe 
wardrobe. So we're really do, doing the thinking for our customer and mm. creating a wardrobe that is ultimately versatile and does the thinking for them. So we've done the hard sort of thinking in the design studio so that a customer can come in and really just buy two pieces or five pieces or ten pieces and really build their wardrobe out. Alison, tell me about the, don't know whether you would call them mentors or sounding boards or people who've helped you on the way. I'd call them sponsors, actually. Sponsors. I've, I've, I've worked with some incredibly inspiring uh, leaders, but they've they've actively sponsored me. So Sir David Higgins or I've talked about uh, Sir Howard. And I think that's been really important that you know they've got your back and they, they've really pushed me out of my comfort zone and encouraged and uh, I would say actively coached me and sponsored me and pushed me forward. And I think, you know, all of my success, I would say, is is down to them, really. Well, and I think you... that's really important. I'm yep. a great... Um, great fan of coaching as well and we do a lot of coaching in the crown estate there's all the difference in the world between managers and leaders and getting people to reflect on their strengths and weaknesses and encourage them and teach them how to how to step into those leadership roles give them permission to step into those leadership roles and were you willingly coached given you said you were a bit commander control to begin with so did you take advice well I remember when Sir David Higgins first said when I was on the Olympics, did I want a coach? And I thought, oh, why am I doing something wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and he went, oh, that's a typical Alison Common. He went, no, no, I think all the directors should have uh, coaching. And I didn't even really know what a coach was then. And it was uh, it was a real Rubicon moment for me, actually. And I realised that a lot of the challenges in work. Lots of people had seen them before. Lots of people had tackled them before. And actually, it was a really quick way to accelerating confidence and, you know, dealing with some of these uh, uh, big issues. And I still now and again do some coaching. And um, through So you some... pass it on as your coaching people now? I do mentoring. Mm. Uh, we do a lot of coaching in the uh, the business. And I think particularly for accelerating women into middle and upper management, it's mm. a fundamental part of helping equip them with the leadership skills and the confidence that they need. Was the coaching you had particularly helpful given property still really, really male-dominated? I was going through a tricky period, actually, when I had my first coach. And she I didn't realise at the time, but she was her nickname was Scary Mary. And she really did <laughs> get me to deal with some stuff that I wasn't... There was a, there was a lot of bad behaviour around at the time and um, bullying. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I wasn't even bullied in the schoolyard. And so, actually, she helped give me some tools to just deal with it. I just found it a really good way of resetting your thinking and having some space just to talk as, as Amanda was saying earlier stand back from problems that you're in the middle of mm. and just be more strategic mm. uh, and actually have the space to think about dealing with stuff and it was it was really transformational at the time Amanda is there advice you'd offer this hackney question advice you'd offer your younger self yes be <laughs> Really choose who you partner with and and choose who you hire. I think in years gone by, I would hire more of a CV than I would of a person. And actually, I think it's a combination of, of the two. Obviously, the person has to have the skills required for the role, but you do spend a lot of time with these people. You've really got to like them and you've got to respect them. What motivates you now? Is it what motivated you when you came back from New York those years ago? Yes, I, th I think so. It's still fundamentally about making a woman feel the best version of mm. herself and feel 
empowered and effortlessly chic and just it sounds very simplistic but but actually I don't know many women who don't want to be empowered by their clothes and and when I say empowered by their clothes it's such a hackneyed word empowered when it comes to clothing but it's about making you feel good from the inside and I think if you feel good and comfortable from the inside you become the best version of yourself you can ignore what you're wearing and get on with being a great CEO or a great creative because you feel comfortable and confident. And Alison, coming to the end of your time at Crown Estate now, what motivates you? What are you thinking of with that next thing for you, if you like? Oh, well, I've still got a few months to go to finish the job I started, but I love seeing people grow and I love I love creating brilliant places. Um, so I'm going uh, to have a, give myself a, a break at the, the end of the year. I'm going to take six months off and catch up on my traveling and actually really really think about what I want to do next and it's got to be worth getting out of bed in the morning to do it's got to be interesting and it's challenging it's got to be challenging and actually given what we're facing at the moment I think it's it's got to add something to the world so you know sustainability runs all the way through my DNA these days that sort of sense of adaptability and stewardship and leaving a, a light footprint on the planet and there's a huge amount of heavy lifting that we need to do on that in the next few years so let's watch this space I think I would say James mm, okay um, Alison Nimmo and Amanda Wakeley thanks so much for the conversation thank you thank you it's been fun thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton which is supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor please rate and review us and you can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify including a conversation with Paul Farmer Chief Executive of the mental health organisation Mind. Here he is explaining how it can be tough at the top for charity leaders. I think it can be incredibly tough. Being, well, being a senior leader in any organisation is incredibly tough, but inside a charity, I think there's sometimes an expectation that you are completely Teflon. Despite the fact that you work in a space where they're, you know, almost the very nature of the issues that you're working in is distress. If you're if you're a crisis or the Red Cross, somehow your leaders are even more Superman Teflon than business leaders. Yep. We're just ordinary people.